Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from outside the UK Houses of Parliament, I'm Max Foster. And I'm Eleni Jokas, live from the New York Stock Exchange. And here's what you need to know. To vote or not to vote, all eyes on the UK House Speaker, John Burko, as he decides whether to put the Prime Minister's bill on the table for a meaningful vote. Getting out in front, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg has a media blitz ahead of his testimony on Capitol Hill. And Boeing share price falls further after instant messages about the 737 MAX were revealed. It's Monday and this is First Move. So a very good morning to you. And it's all about the art of the deal this Monday. The British Prime Minister is courting votes to get his Brexit plan through Parliament. Meanwhile, a conciliatory tone on the US front is pushing stocks futures higher. President Trump thinks a deal will be signed by mid-November. China's top negotiator said an end to tensions would be good for both sides. As you can see, we're sitting in the green this Monday. Now, against this backdrop, a number of big names deliver earnings this week. McDonald's, Boeing and Amazon are among them. Now, the pound is also the big move on the currency market, trading near 130 to the US dollar, uh, and that's very close to a five-month high. So investors are optimistic. A no-deal Brexit is off the table, but there remains a lot to be done before the deal is actually sealed. So that's where we begin uh, on our drivers today, and of course, a very decisive day for Brexit, uh, Max. And the question is, <laughs> any decision going to be made? And we thought it was going to happen over the weekend, but we're almost like back to square one in a sense. Yes, no one knows. But the British Prime Minister yeah. giving it one more try, at least, calling for a new vote on his uh, Brexit deal uh, to leave the EU, a so-called meaningful vote in the coming hours. The Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burke, will have a lot to say about that. It's his decision, ultimately, about whether or not this vote will take place. The British government is trying to recover from Saturday's stunning loss here in Parliament, which forced the Prime Minister to seek another Brexit delay from the EU. A short while ago, France's EU minister said Mr Johnson must give a yes or a no on his withdrawal agreement before October the 31st. Uh, Nick Robertson is with me. What do you make, first of all, about that, those comments coming from Paris? Well, we're hearing from uh, the German Foreign Minister as well. Look, uh, all eyes from Europe are on Parliament, and this is what we've been hearing from a number of uh, ambassadors and uh, ministers uh, over the weekend. And in today because they feel Boris Johnson has been given the best deal. Um, but this whole the consumption of their time and their attention um, over Brexit, which is essentially a British affair, they need clarity from the British. And it's up to the British Parliament now mm. to say whether or not they support Boris Johnson's deal. And this will therefore inform uh, the EU leaders how they should decide on this three-month extension for Brexit negotiations that Boris Johnson was for to hand over over the weekend. The common speaker could say, I don't want this vote coming to the floor again because that's against the rules. He probably will allow it ultimately, presumably. But then we look at 
what might be attached to it by Parliament, which Boris Johnson isn't going to like. If he was to allow it to go through, and the idea is why he may decide not to, he said at the weekend it was mostly regular, but he may decide that this is something that was voted on before, so you can't vote on the same thing again. Or, in fact, the amendment that was voted on over the weekend that passed said you need to allow time for all the legislation that goes into making the Brexit deal, which is an international treaty, into domestic legislation, which typically takes a long time, that you cannot have a meaningful vote until, or the meaningful vote doesn't, doesn't have relevance mm. until the legislation is done. We need time to do that. So the amendments that we're talking about here that could be attached to this deal, if the Speaker gives yeah. the green light, are an amendment for uh, the United Kingdom to remain in the European Union Customs Union. Uh, and that came to a 276 to 273 vote earlier in the year, so that's the closest one. So there's a, a sentiment that believes maybe that could pass but now. Is it leaving the EU? Um, you know, it is in, in, in some respects. You're, you're, be, you're still not saying you're, you're remaining inside the European Union's single market. For example, it is not leaving the EU as most Brexiteers and the sort of a hard wing of the uh, of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party conceive uh, yeah. conceive Brexit, and then there's the issue that maybe a an F an amendment on a second referendum, which would come into play once the deal's agreed. It goes back to the British people. This is what we've got. You voted in 2016. Does this match yeah. up with what you were expecting? Um, even if he gets everything he wants, Boris Johnson, it's really hard to see how he's got enough time to get everything through as well. I mean, it's vaguely possible, but it has to have a lot of success today. It's crucial for him. Totally. It'd have to have support on the pro on the uh, programme motion. When the programme motion says um, we need, we can get all this legislation done, but we need to speed it up, longer sittings, start early, finish later, work through the weekends, and we can deliver all this legislation. But the counter-argument is, it, this needs time, it's, it's very important, we need to go through it line by line, um, you can't rush it through, and typically, to do this transfer of sort of international treaty to domestic legislation um, is many, many weeks. Okay, um, Nick, thank you very much. Uh, this is what we have in store then, uh, ahead of us. I'll be back with an update at about half past the hour, speaking with former UK ambassador to the US and to France, Peter West. But until then, Eleni, back to you. All right. Thanks so much, Max. We'll speak to you later. So now Mark Zuckerberg uh, says that Facebook was caught on its back foot when Russia interfered in the 2016 election. Today, the company will unveil its latest measures in its battle against foreign actors. However, on U.S. television, the CEO has been defending the decision to allow Donald Trump to post a video from supporters with false claims about his rival, Joe Biden. Do you feel like you're giving a green light to politicians that no, look, lie, lie, lie? I, I believe that, um, that it is important for people to be able to hear and see uh, what politicians are saying. I think that when they do that, um, that speech will be heavily scrutinized by other journalists, by other people. So we've got Hadass Gold joining me now. Look, we know Mark Zuckerberg has been saying he's wanting to defend free speech. Critics are saying misleading ads are a risk. So we know that ultimately Facebook doesn't want to be in the business of regulating content, but in the lead up to elections, we've got to hear some kind of messaging on this front. What are we expecting? 
Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg is being criticized pretty heavily for this stance of saying, listen, we want to be hands off. We don't want to be the ones being the arbiters of truth. And Mark Zuckerberg is essentially saying that he trusts the public and the media to take on the job of deciding what is true and what is not. The problem is, of course, that so much of people's information now just comes from Facebook. I mean, in some parts of the world, that is people's portal to the Internet. And it's really interesting to see these sort of forces coming up against Facebook. I mean, Elizabeth Warren actually put out an ad on Facebook that essentially had misinformation on it. It said Mark Zuckerberg had endorsed Trump. That wasn't true. But she was trying to make a point that a politician can lie in these Facebook ads. Now, it's one thing for Facebook to say, okay, we don't want to be the ones who are deciding what's true and what's not. It's another thing for them to allow these ads to be bought and essentially be promoted across Facebook. This is a question, I think, that Mark Zuckerberg will continue being see being posed to him over and over again because of Facebook's power over our media, Facebook's power in people's hands every single day as they're going to the polls. It is a question that they will at some point have to answer. We've seen them do this before. For example, with misinformation and Russian interference, Mark Zuckerberg before 2016 saying, oh, there's no, there's no way that Facebook could be used to influence elections. Then they sort of backtrack. They go on a bit of an apology tour. Now we're back with Facebook saying, standing strong, doing all of these interviews, doing a publicity blitz, saying we don't want to be the ones that are deciding what's true or not. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, we've seen people drawing parallels to censorship in China, but many people say we shouldn't be looking at that as an example because there's a fundamental difference in terms of spending, uh, you know, spreading misinformation and false information during a political campaign. Is it going to be really difficult for Facebook to strike that kind of balance in a world where people can say what they want on, on the platform? think so, especially as Facebook is actually making some moves to try to help people parse through what they see on Facebook. In addition to, their, uh, Facebook is about to announce, as you said, some measures to work with election interference, including labeling media that is state controlled. So this is going to be things like Russia Today, other media that are completely controlled by the state government. The idea being that it'll help people understand better where this information is coming from. So if Facebook is willing to take certain steps on things like that, then the question is, okay, how far are you going to go? Why aren't you yeah. going to label something that's misleading? I've heard from people say that Facebook is essentially creating two Facebooks. One, where if you pay the ads, like a politician, you pay for ads, have them up, you can say whatever you want. But if you're a regular user, there may be different rules for you. All right, Hadas, thank you very much for that update. So now, plane maker Boeing is under pressure once again. Instant messages released Friday suggest employees knew about problems with the 737 MAX in 2016. On Sunday, the company expressed regret over the messages. Now, we've got Claire Sebastian joining me now. Claire, they're expressing regret over the messages, but, you know, what we really need to hear is regret over the fact that Boeing knew that there was a problem, a fundamental problem with the plane, right? Well, that is the core issue, Eleni, in this now, you know, in the eighth month of the grounding of the 737 MAX, the uh, the allegation, the, the question as to whether Boeing knew there were problems with the MCAS software, the anti-stall system that's, uh, that's in question here, uh, and didn't act on that knowledge. So these leaked messages where uh, a test pilot uh, described the, uh, the, the, the MCAS software as egregious, he said it was running rampant, those really are a, a blow to Boeing's efforts to push back on this. But we have a statement from the company that they put out uh, on Sunday. I want to read you a portion of that. They are saying 
It is unfortunate that this document, which was provided earlier this year to government regulators, so they are saying they did give it to regulators. The FAA, of course, refused that, could not be released in a manner which would have allowed for meaningful explanation. While we have not been able to speak to Mr. Faulkner, he's the test pilot, directly about his understanding of the document, he has stated through his attorney that his comments reflect a, re a reaction to a simulator program that was not functioning yeah. properly and that was still undergoing testing. So Boeing saying the problem was with a simulator program, not with the plane itself. But this does, Eleni, really ramp up pressure on Boeing management. They've got earnings out this week. Dennis Muhlenberg, the CEO, now stripped of his chairman role, is set to testify at the end of the month before Congress. And of course, the big question is, what does this do to the timeline uh, to getting the plane reapproved to, to fly? Because this brings up so many issues, right? It's about taking responsibility. It's about consequences because the world wants to see consequences with regards to what we saw in the crashes. And then you've also got the, you know, the shareholder side of things where you've got the share price coming, uh, you know, under a lot of pressure as well. What do you think the messaging is going to be later this week and what kind of numbers are we expecting? expected Eleni to, to return to profitability. They posted a big loss in the last quarter, taking a $5 billion hit to, to, to cover compensation to the airlines for the grounding of the plane. Uh, but I think, as I said, the real question uh, for investors and analysts is the timeline going forward. Boeing has said it's still targeting uh, approval by the FAA for the plane to, to start flying again yeah. by the end of this year. The airlines have pushed out, the American airlines have pushed out flights until January at the earliest. Uh, and I think, you know, the clear issue is that the long the planes remain on the ground, the more expensive this gets, be it customer compensation, be it the cost of storing the planes. So Boeing really wants to be able to provide some clarity uh, to, to, to investors and analysts about that timeline, but it looks like they might struggle with that. All right, thank you very much for that, Kay Sebastian. All right, so now let's take a look at stories making headlines around the world. U.S. troops in armored vehicles have been pelted with rotten vegetables as they leave Syria. A group of Syrian Kurdish people were filmed shouting abuse at the convoy as it travels towards Iraq. Now, the troops will be redeployed in Iraq despite President Trump's claim that he's bringing them home. We've got Jamana Karachi joining us now from the Turkish-Syrian border. Great to have you uh, on... Look, we know that Syrian Kurds have given us a sense that they feel abandoned, uh, that the U.S. is exiting Syria um, and basically allowing them, you know, a change in terms of the power dynamic in that region. Do you think that the pelting of food is symbolic towards what they're feeling right now? Absolutely. You know, Eleni, you have to just look at these images to you can see and you can feel the anger people there in northeastern Syria are feeling right now. You know, the United States and its military are not very popular in much of the Middle East, but the Kurds have always been welcoming of the Americans, whether that was in Iraq or in Syria. They've always been close to the United States. They've always been their reliable ally in this part of the world. So you can see now that they feel that they have been uh, left alone. They have been abandoned by the United States, as you mentioned, because it was that uh, withdrawal of troops from the border area that they say is what paved the ground, basically, for that military operation for the Turkish forces to come in. So, you know, confronting that, uh, the Turkish advance, they felt that they had no choice but to turn to Damascus, to the Syrian regime for their help. And so, you know, a lot of people uh, in that part of Syria, the Syrian Kurds, they feel that 
They were used by the United States uh, basically in that fight against ISIS. They were the ground force. They were uh, the ones on the front lines fighting ISIS. They say that they have sacrificed more than 11,000 individuals, fighters who lost their lives in that battle. And when ISIS was defeated, and we're talking about territory here, the United States was basically done with them. But, you know, at the same time, when you see these images, there were also uh, others circulating on social media of people holding up banners and signs uh, saying that, you know, they thank the American people. They know that this is not the doing of the American soldiers or the American people, but it is President Trump who blame for this current situation. And, you know, Eleni, this is not the first time that the Kurds feel uh, abandoned, betrayed by their allies. They say it's happened so many times over the years. And that is why so many Kurds would remind you now of the saying that they, uh, you know, uh, they would always repeat is that the only friend they have is the mountains. Right, Jamana, thank you very much uh, for that update and your reporting from a critical time uh, at a critical uh, geography. Thank you so much. So rescue crews now are checking for damage after a tornado swept through Dallas, Texas on Sunday night. No reports of anyone killed or seriously injured, but a Home Depot got hammered by the storm. Uh, every family has its ups and downs. Uh, the British royals are no exception. In a new TV interview, Prince Harry acknowledges the relationship between him and his brother, Prince William has highs and lows, but says that bond will never be broken. Take a listen. Part of the part of this role and part of this job and this family being under the pressure that it's under, inevitably, you know, stuff um, stuff happens. But look, we're we're brothers. We're, we'll always be brothers. Um, we're certainly on different paths at the moment. But I will always be there for him, and as I know, he'll always be there for me. Um, you know, we don't see each other as much as we as much as we used to because we're so busy. Um, but you know, I, I love him dearly, and you know, the majority of the stuff is probably well, the majority of stuff is created out of nothing. Um, but you know, it's just as I said, as brothers, you know, you have good days, you have bad days. Okay, so Prince Harry's statements come on the heels of tabloid reports about a rift between the royal brothers. On first move, all eyes on the UK Parliament as the fate of Boris Johnson's Brexit vote rests on one man. And stubbing it out, one of the world's biggest tobacco giants looks towards a smoke-free future. I'll be speaking to the CEO of Philip Morris International. Stay with CNN. to first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Eleni Jokos. Let's check in to see how U.S. futures are pointing right now in positive territory. And one of the big things, of course, U.S.-China trade talks. We know that uh, the U.S. is hopeful to reach a deal soon. We've also got a big big earnings week. Microsoft, Amazon, and even Boeing coming out with numbers later on. And to discuss uh, the macroeconomic environment, I've got Krishna Memani, Vice Chairman of Investments at Invesco, joining me now. Thank you, sir, for joining us. Yeah, thank have you. you. You know, I was at the IMF World Bank meetings last week, and we've been hearing about worries about a slowdown globally, and the U.S.-China trade talks are in the middle of that. And, of course, that's one of the big culprits. How do you see this playing out? Well, so, you know, the slowdown is real, and it's uh, it's global. Uh, Having said that, the U.S. economy continues to do okay. Uh, 
and from a trade perspective, while it has slowed things down, as yeah. long as it doesn't get worse, it doesn't get exacerbated, we'll be able to deal with it because it's a fiscal consolidation. Yeah. And we know what the magnitude of that consolidation is. Yeah, I mean, they're talking about $700 billion being wiped off the global economy, but the reality is here that you've got accommodative monetary policy globally, the U.S. is embarking on stimulus, Europe is also sitting in you know, a tight spot. How many tools are there to actually pull us out of any kind of slowdown? Well, so I, I think monetary policy is really the only tool that is getting implemented. Yeah. There are fiscal tools, we talk a lot about it, but the place where you can implement it the most is probably Europe, and they don't seem to be yeah. very willing to do that at the moment. Yeah. So it's really about monetary policy, but I think in the U.S. context anyway, that can work. And if you have the tail risks taper off, Brexit, uh, trade deal, then I think all of the easing of financial conditions can actually help. So that's very uh, that's a big uncertainty for you, right? Brexit and the, and the negotiations that are currently on the go. Were you hopeful that things were going to kind of be bedded down over the weekend? Oh, yes. Are you oh, disappointed? Yes. Well, so I, I think things were going to be bedded down because it's politics and this yeah. is probably going to continue. <laughs> it's, it's the same thing that is going on in the U.S. It's just Boris Johnson happens to be a better politician, so he can come out of it pretty, uh, pretty well, despite yeah. having handed, uh, you know, eight, ten defeats so yeah, far. Yeah, survival politically, right, but I mean, to the detriment of the economy. But um, let's also take a look at earnings out of the U.S. You've got Microsoft, you've got Boeing, and the reality is this is having a bearing on how the markets are going to be doing down the line. You've got the Dow and you've got uh, the S&P sitting very close to record highs. Mm -hmm. um, are you hopeful that corporates are going to be doing well? Well, so third quarter is already baked in, so uh, I, I think the earnings in third quarter are probably the bottom of the cycle. By the, by the end of this year and by the first half of next year, next year, because of the easing of financial conditions, the economic outlook for the U.S. actually is bottoming out and probably looks good. So earnings growth, in that they're not going to be double digits, but they can very easily be 5-6%. And if you have 5-6%, from markets from these levels can go up to 3,300 or something like that yeah. by end of 2020. So we know that market participants wants, want to hear the right messaging from the Federal Reserve, right? But that doesn't, does that really influence demand on the ground? And how do you see those two dynamics playing out? Markets are telling us one thing, economy might be telling us something else down the line. Well, so I, I think that what the economy is telling you, or what the markets are telling you, is that things are bottoming out. Yeah. And that's an important message because while we say that uh, monetary policy is not having any effect, remember, look at 2018 when they were tightening policy, yeah. uh, things were going really bad. So it does have an effect, it just doesn't have as much effect as it used to have in the past. I think easing of financial conditions is important. Uh, tightening was a mistake, and I think that will certainly bottom the economy out and get the market. So high. stimulus is coming in a different form. You know, you've got the Fed buying treasuries, and you've got you know you can play around with interest rates. But what do you want to see down the line? Because remember, we've got about 15 trillion dollars worth of bonds globally sitting with negative yields. So you know what I what ideally I would like to see is not things getting not sand thrown be, being thrown in the the, the wheels here because yeah. that's what trade deal was uh, the, or the trade conflict was. You know things were going reasonably well. You know eliminating those things is what we need for the global economy to recover and stabilize. Unfortunately, every so often we run into these situations. Okay, so very quickly, um, are you excited about what we'll be seeing down the line globally? Do you think there's going to be resolution and are we going to be able to avoid a, a global economic slump? Uh, absolutely. I, I think we have bottomed out third quarter of this year. We, when we look back at things in, uh, in a year's time, this was the bottom and markets are going higher. I think uh, they're going modestly higher in 2019, yeah. but meaningfully higher in 2020. Well, that's
that's pretty optimistic, right? Yes, yes. That's Four pretty, more years. Yeah, that's absolutely. Our goal. Okay, so emerging markets, it seems that they're the victims of all the stuff that's happening in developed economies. Are you putting your money into riskier assets right now where you can find some yield? Well, so I think emerging market debt from an income standpoint is probably the best asset class at the moment. Emerging market equities, that's a punt on whether we'll have a trade deal or not. I think we ah. will, uh, and the dollar will weaken, and I think the outlook for emerging market equities has improved meaningfully. Okay, so what's your favorite market right now? Uh, favorite market remains the U.S. because I, I think the U.S. recovery is pretty much but guaranteed. But there's no yield here. Well, so, you, you know, know I mean, it depends, depends where you, you put your money. You know, it, it, I guess if you are used to 8% uh, yield, there's no yield there. <laughs> yes. But if you're used to negative yields, 4% is pretty good. <laughs> That's very true. From an emerging market perspective, I mean, China's slowing as well. Is that a big risk? And would you put your money near, near well, China? So I, I think China has been slowing for quite some time, and that will probably continue. But I don't think it is a catastrophic outcome. It, it's actually a very controlled outcome. And they have enough tools to kind of manage that path, that downward path. I have and to say, you're, you're a lot doing. more optimistic than a lot of the policymakers that I've been speaking to. Are you just, have, are you just, you know, very confident they're going to be doing the right thing? Well, I, I think the the risk for the global economy is really things like trade, and yeah. policymakers want to make, ensure that we kind of resolve this issue, and their their defensive posture probably helps in that I regard. I hope so, because last time I was here, we had the same problem. Still, no resolution on China-U.S. trade war. Thank you very much, sir, for joining us. Much appreciated. Thank you. We're going to a short break. When we come back, the opening bell here in New York. Stay with us. Stock Exchange. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos. Let's quickly take a look to see how markets are faring in the first few seconds of trade and all sitting in positive territory. Dow, S&P and Nasdaq very close to record highs uh, and of course just a few percentage points away. One thing that's going to be big is market moving numbers. We've got results expected out of McDonald's, Microsoft, Boeing as well as Amazon. We'll be keeping a close watch on those numbers later on this week. In the meantime, over the pond, the UK Parliament is back in session for what seems like it's another decisive week for Brexit and of course we're expecting a meaningful vote uh, on the Brexit deal later on today. They're going to be debating this in the coming hours in the House of Commons. We've got Max Foster and his team standing by and covering all of the developments for us. Max, the meaningful vote, something we thought we were going to see on the weekend, didn't materialize and a few more steps that needed to be taken. Uh, what's the update? Uh, well, we're waiting to hear whether or not it even gets onto the floor because John Burko, who's the Speaker of the Commons, needs to decide on that. That's the first thing uh, that we're expecting today. He expected to announce that decision in just the coming hours. And some noted it would break with parliamentary convention to have the same question being put before law lawmakers twice in the same session. But actually, government side saying it's a different question for the one that was actually presented on Saturday. Meanwhile, the EU getting to grips with the letters Mr Johnson sent on Saturday regarding a Brexit extension. Having failed to get his new Brexit deal approved, the PM was legally obliged to request the extension, but he hasn't signed one of the letters. The EU says it doesn't change anything, uh, though. They are accepting that letter as an authoritative letter, even though it wasn't signed. Peter Westmacott uh, joins me, former British ambassador to the US and to France. Uh, we have to um, also consider whether or not the Europeans will allow an extension away from the letter. Do you think that that's likely? They need a reason, don't they? 
Some of them have said there'll be no problem if that's what the British government really does want. But one or two others, including President Macron, have said that an extension really isn't very helpful. But that may have been partly because he'd had a phone call with Boris Johnson beforehand. So I think we don't know. But the likelihood is that if the Prime Minister gets to the point where he wants to take the extension, the one that he's formally requested but doesn't really want to have, that I think the others will not stand in his way. I doubt if the other European heads of government will want to be the reason why it all falls apart by denying the UK an extension, if that's what the PM wants. Um, John Burko may block this today. That would cause untold damage to the process, presumably, because there's so little time left and this is the only option on the table. I mean, what's your view? I'm not that. sure that if he says no to a vote today uh, that it blocks things or does much more damage to it. But I think what would happen is that later in the week this thing would still be out there and it would, if he allowed it, uh, give the people who don't like the package as it stands the opportunity to vote on some amendments or to suggest some. And the two most obvious ones we've heard about is introducing again the idea of a customs union and the other one is, well, okay, we'll do this if there's a confirmatory referendum. Neither of those two amendments would find favour with the Prime Minister, but if the Speaker allows it, that would allow that discussion to continue a little bit later in the week. My hunch is the Prime Minister wouldn't accept either and would probably then say, you know what, in that case, I'll take the three-month extension and guess what? You know, what do I know? But guess what? I think I'll hold a general election. Uh, one suggestion as well, he could agree to the customs union, for example, and the referendum, uh, win an election and then undo those decisions, so not go ahead with them. He could. That would strike me as an act of, you know, some sort of political insincerity. Um, uh, he's already under a certain amount of attack uh, for changing his mind and, and doing one thing one day and something else the next. He could, but I would have thought it would be, it would be more straightforward and in closer keeping with the principles that he's spelled out. Mm. If he said, I'm not going to have my hands tied in that way, I will go and ask the people in a general election. But we don't know. We are very up against it, though, aren't we? If we consider this effectively this process in one bill effectively enshrining EU law into UK law, a mammoth task. Yes. Uh, and we've only got a matter of weeks. Exactly. And most people who understand the detail of the legislative process that we have to go through in order to leave the European Union are saying, you know what, unless you work 20 hours a day, uh, and their lordships, uh, never mind the Commons, might not wish to do that. This simply can't be done by the 31st of October. Prime Minister Michael Gove and others keep saying we'll be out on the 31st of October. I would have thought that even if everything went swimmingly for the PM, it's going to take at least a few days longer than that to get the, the various ducks in a row legislatively so that that can happen. Uh, in terms of what you expect to happen today then, is there something that will be useful to our viewers or will it be more of the same in terms of, you know, okay, we're making one little step, one little step, one little step, at what point do we know what's actually going to unfold at the end of the month? I think the, the main decision we get today is Speaker John Burko saying at around half past three uh, whether or not he's going to allow the vote to be taken that wasn't taken on Saturday okay. after the passage of the Oliver Letwin Amendment. So the expectation is that he's going to say no because it's too close to the last one. On the other hand, the last one wasn't voted upon and defeated, it was pulled. Mm. So there are arguments both ways, but the, the buzz around Westminster just here seems to be that Berka will say no to a vote today, and so I think it'll be voted upon with or without amendments probably in the next couple of days. Okay, uh, Sir Peter, thank you very much as ever. Eleni, um, we're expecting to hear from the Speaker in the next yeah. hour, so I think Richard will be bringing you that.
Fantastic. Thanks so very much, Max. So we're covering two different protests in two countries, and it's all about raising taxes and, of course, the economic situation there. We start off with Chile. Now, schools are closed in the capital, and the government has extended a state of emergency. A week of violent protests have left. At least 10 people dead. A proposed hike in public transportation fares sparked the angry demonstrations. The president has now suspended the fare increase, and the Senate is expected to hold a special session today to discuss terminating it. And developments now out of Lebanon. The embattled government has just announced reforms, including slashing the salaries of top politicians. This after hundreds of thousands of demonstrators gathered for a fifth day, protesting what they see as a corrupt and elitist ruling class. So Lebanon's economy has been faltering for a while. The prime minister says there'll be no new austerity measures. Plus, a panel to combat corruption is also being put together to clean up. Now, the mood is beginning to change in the country. However, Lebanese people of all ages, backgrounds and religions promised to keep fighting. Ben Wiedemann filed this report. It's the drumbeat of revolution. Banging in Beirut and across Lebanon. For the fourth straight day, the protests continued. Each day bigger than the day before. The atmosphere is jubilant. But the underlying grievances are real. Anger over a faltering economy, official corruption, and barely functioning basic services. Five-year-old Yusuf suffers from a hereditary disease. His father, Ibrahim, an ex-soldier, can't find work, can't afford Yusuf's treatment. Along with his wife, Farah, they tried to leave the country by boat with Syrian refugees to Turkey. We paid 8,000 euros, says Ibrahim. We sold our car, my motorbike, hoping we would find something better outside. The boat sank. They barely survived. We almost drowned when he was eight months old, Ibrahim says. We risked his life to escape this disgusting country. It's all politics, sectarianism, theft and looting. Beyond the specifics of the economy, there is deep resentment toward Lebanon's political and business elite, often one and the same. They have been taking a lot of money since years to their... They are, they are considering us as slaves, as dumb people. They are stealing and stealing and stealing. But at the end, people will say no. For now, the fabric that is Lebanon appears one. The protesters united in anger and outrage at a political system that for nearly 80 years used sectarian divisions to pull it apart. The pressure from the street is mounting and in just days has yielded results. Repeatedly, the government here has retreated. It scrapped the WhatsApp tax. It promised no more taxes on ordinary citizens. And it's dropped the idea of an austerity budget. None of those steps, however, has had much impact on these protests. As the sun sets over Beirut, the streets remain full. This long-suffering country has seen flashes of hope. Ben Wiedemann, CNN. Estimated 1 billion smokers in the world, and that's according to tobacco giant Philip Morris International. The CEO of the company tells me why he wants everyone to kick the cigarette habit. Coming up after the break.
cigarette industry continues to decline according to the latest earnings from the tobacco giant Philip Morris. The company is investing heavily in its heated tobacco products. This comes at a time when vaping continues to be linked to serious lung problems. Philip Morris says its ICOS system burns tobacco at a lower temperature and leads to a 90 to 95 percent reduction in chemicals compared to regular cigarettes. In the third quarter, cigarette shipment volumes fell by nearly 6 percent while sales of heated tobacco units rose by nearly 85 percent. We've got Andre Kalanzopoulos, uh, the CEO of Philip Morris International, joining me now. And Andre, great to have you with Thank me. You. Thank, you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. really good to have you. So I know that you're, you want people to kick the cigarette habit. That's one of the big messages that you're sending, which is so different to what we've been hearing from tobacco companies for decades and decades. Is your ICOS system a, a viable solution for those that don't really want to vape, but yet still want the tobacco experience? Well, ICOS is designed to convince people who smoke and would otherwise continue to smoke to switch to this product. And because yeah. it contains tobacco that is heated at low temperatures. So it's different to vaping, basically. Um, I mean, you've got to it is, that it is different to vaping because it heats tobacco. Vaping is a liquid yeah. and evaporates a liquid. But um, the taste and satisfaction of a tobacco product is much closer to cigarettes, although still different. So you've got FDA approval, which is very different to what we've seen in the vaping industry. But yet, are you then not bundled into a vaping product that has received the bad rep recently? Because, I mean, in, in the U.S. alone, 1,500 people have been linked to, deaths have been linked to vaping. Well, let's look at the things one after the other. There is an authorization of the FDA for ICOS. It is the only product that contains tobacco that has been through the FDA process. It is now the uh, e-vapor products have also to go as of May next year through the same process. And I think there will be some that probably will not pass and others that will eventually be authorized. Now, as we said, the products are slightly different, but they have one characteristic, all of them. They don't burn tobacco, so they're smoke-free. And that's where you start seeing the difference in terms of being a better alternative than cigarettes for the people who smoke. Um, there is a lot of controversy, as we said, around the vapor uh, products in the US and you're observing from the outside. I think there is a lot of confusion uh, sometimes. Yes, there are very regretful losses of life and illness related to lungs, but as the investigation by the FDA and the CDC goes on, we see that they are related much more to the use of oils or THC oils and not the traditional nicotine containing products. I get you. And we should stop this confusion for the one, you know, for this very but, many people. But, but when you don't have regulation and policy over these products, you can't eliminate the fact that there might be an issue with all vaping products, and that, that, that's the problem. And you've got 50% of Americans that don't trust vaping products at the moment. Well, but first of all, this is an issue because properly manufactured uh, e-vapor products and closed systems so we cannot alter the temperature or the liquids used are better than cigarettes and I'm sure the PMTA process to the, the FDA will eventually prove this. We have to be very careful when we have all these inflammatory trials, and, uh, you know, titles yeah. and conflation because there are more than 12 million people in the US and many around the world that use vapor products and giving the impression that they are worse than cigarettes or equally bad as cigarettes, I think it's a very, very bad thing. So, I mean, look, Altria deal, that fell through and it happened during the height of the issues with Juul as well. Are you, are you
you almost relieved that the deal didn't happen? Because you would have been on the inside. You were saying you were watching on the outside, but you know, you would have well, been on the inside if, if the deal the, didn't happen. The issue remains the same, and it's an important issue to be addressed. As I said, for us, be it in the U.S. or internationally, mm -hmm. what we need from a consumer perspective, the people who smoke, and then one billion people smoke, we absolutely need to eliminate confusion because otherwise people will stay with cigarettes. And what is going to happen to people that got temporarily confused here, they go back to cigarettes? Is that a public health but desire? But my question was, I mean, you would have been on the inside, and if a deal happened with, but with we Altria, are, are because you, Yeah, absolutely, but I mean, you would have been a lot closer to it. Do you want the partnership, the deal to happen with Altria, and now you just have a partnership in terms of distribution? Okay, but, you know, as a participant in the new categories, alternatives to cigarettes, we are mm. a participant in the category. I think what you said previously is an important point. All these products that contain nicotine must be regulated. Uh, and I think as we go through the process with the FDA, clarity will prevail. And I think that will be for the benefit of the people who smoke and public Very health. quickly, is it difficult to convince the consumer that smokes cigarettes to move to your ICOS system? Because a lot of people, yeah. it's a cultural thing, it's an enjoyment, it's about, you know, having a cigarette with a cup of coffee. Look, it's not easy. Uh, and that's why we've put all the resources we can shifted resources from cigarettes completely almost, put additional money behind, took a very different approach along the consumer journey. So you agree, I, think I we mean, are. look at this graph, you're Greek, right? So am I, and I know everyone in Greece smokes. Look at that number, high smoking rates in the world sitting at 43%. How do you convince people like that? Well, actually, stop? ICOS is progressing very well in Greece. Yeah. If we look at the world, we have already close to 13 million people that moved out of cigarettes and switched to ICOS. Yeah. And in Greece, we're reaching about 10, 11% of total consumption combined uh, cigarettes and ICOs. So I think it's pretty successful in just a few years. Yeah. Uh, it is complicated, but you know, the heart and the money and is there, so I think we'll yeah. continue progress. And you're making more money product. from ICOs than what you make from cigarettes, yeah? The margins are a bit better. Yeah. Uh, of course, there is a lot of investment up front, but you know, ICOs for the first three quarters of the year is $4.1 billion revenue. Thank you very so much, Andre. Much appreciated for your time. What an interesting transition in the uh, industry that's uh, you know been going on for decades so coming up on first move next a meaningful monday uk prime minister boris johnson is pushing lawmakers to vote on his brexit deal the fate of which lies on house speaker john burko stay with us Now, here's today's boardroom brief. Halliburton fell short of Wall Street forecast, reporting a 32% slump in profits for the third quarter. The company's revenue was hit by weak demand in North America, shale drilling, its biggest market. A weak oil price environment has placed increased pressure on Halliburton and competitors' bottom line. And to a Brexit of a different kind, Chick-fil-A has decided to close its first and only outlet in Britain after opening it around 11 days ago. Um, a mall in Reading, England, has decided not to renew its six-month lease following a storm of protests from LGBTQ campaigners, which accused the chain's owners of being anti-gay. Now back to Brexit developments in the UK. The Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, is set to make a decision on whether lawmakers will vote on Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. Max Foster is following it all outside Houses of Parliament in London. Max, and I mean, the big question is what is going to play out in the next half hour, I guess. 
Well, the House of Commons Speaker set to make his decision in the next hour, but let's assume John Burke allows a vote to go ahead. The magic number for Boris Johnson's government, 320 MPs to back the deal. Uh, that's what he needs it to pass. Foreign Secretary Donald Raab says they do have the numbers, but Anna... Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, it's so tight. It is so tight that actually last week I would have said, no, I don't think he does have the numbers. But over the weekend, we had a few developments. Of course, we thought this vote was going to happen on Saturday. So we all got ahead of ourselves. The Brexiteer, hardline Brexiteers within the Conservative Party seem to be on board with Boris's deal. That's, this is crucial. This could take mm. it over the line. So we heard from the chairman of the ERG, the European Research Group within that party. He said all MPs should back this deal. Also, interesting on Saturday, because we did get that amendment vote. Within it, we looked at some of the Labour voters who voted against the Letwin Amendment, some who abstained. So I think we can also see a little growth, mm. maybe, in the Labour rebels who could also back Boris's deal or abstain. And Letwin, who brought this amendment in, said that now that it's been passed, he will now support the government. So you'd assume that the MPs that he was working with on that amendment are all of the same well, mind. this is the really interesting thing, because we looked at the let-win vote, and it would be wrong to assume that anyone that voted for it, i.e. against the government, would therefore not vote for this deal. It's just not that simple. Oliver Letwin always said he wants Boris's deal. He just wanted an insurance policy to ensure that no deal was crossed off the list. Some MPs who backed it just want to frustrate the process and will not vote for the deal. So it is nice and complicated. Anna's going to do a lot of counting in the next hour for you, and she'll tell you whether or not it passes or the next day, the week, you know, all week, we're going to have <laughs> amendments to, to break down for you. This isn't the end of our coverage, of course, watching that House of Commons speaker, John Burko, and his announcement in the coming hour. We've got a lot more insight from outside the House of Parliament here in Westminster. Richard will be here uh, with the breakdown with Anna and Bianca, am I correct? Yes. But for now, back to you, Eleni. Yeah, Max, and you've got a full crew there. I mean, look, at the end of the day, there was so much optimism leading up to the weekend. That's changed. But do you think that the door has been shut for a no-deal Brexit, or is there still a risk? Well, the, the reality is that the no-deal Brexit is still there, and that's the default. So all of this, you know, is to find an alternative to leaving without a deal. So Boris Johnson is currently heading towards that. So the ball very much in Parliament's court. Max, thanks so very much. Uh, we know how much uncertainty it's creating for global markets. We'll be keeping a close watch on that. In the meantime, U.S. stocks are sitting in positive territory. We're close to record highs, but of course, lots of earnings to look out for this week, and that's definitely going to be market moving. Well, that's it for First Move. Thanks so very much for watching. I'm Eleni Jokas. Connect the World starts right after this short break. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.